Lord, allow us today to come to this passage, which in some parts is very familiar to us, with the framework of the context so that we can truly grasp, Lord, what it is that you want us to do and how you want us to think, and Lord, how you want us to grow to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you challenge us? Would you encourage us? Would you point us, Lord, in the direction of pursuing your son? Would your gospel, Lord, be seen through um, our unfolding of this text? And Lord, would you be glorified today by your messenger? Lord, just use my words, Lord, to communicate your truth to your people for your glory, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Through my years of being a pastor, I have heard um, many pastors in Christian context of churches and the context of Christian ministry say a lot of different things that are, I would say, uh, in the category of subtle false teachings. I just want to share a few with you this morning just to set the stage for what happens um, in Christian ministry because we've been talking about false teachers and false teaching, and oftentimes where we land the plane on that topic are on the, I want to say, the serious matters like Jesus Christ is God and a false teaching that would say that he isn't God or a denial of the Trinity. Um, But here are some more subtle things that have come through. Here's Bart Campolo, Tony Campolo's son, if you know Tony Campolo. Um, in the 80s and 90s, very, very popular in Christendom. And he was speaking at a gathering of pastors for a local rescue mission. And this is what he said. You probably won't like this, but I have given up on the church in my city. There is far too much conflict, debate about doctrine, and hypocrisy. Now, friends, that is a shocking statement from someone who claims to be a follower of Christ. Because he's saying, I'm done with what Christ has commanded him to be a part of. And this attitude then permeates through the context of the church. By the way, that's not the kind of thing you say to a gathering of pastors. But he did. Another man by the name of Robert Schuller, you probably remember him. He said, man's biggest problem is not his sin. It is his low self-esteem. So caught up with the culture's idea that man's main problem is his low self-esteem, surely shifts gears and speaks to the culture rather than opening the word of God and revealing man's real problem, his sin. Um, Another pastor that I served with said this, God just wants you to follow your heart. As if following your heart is the basis now for your understanding of what is right, true, and godly. Now, the scriptures were not denied, but ultimately how you determine and discern whether something is right or not is you follow your heart. Friends, Disney made that popular, right? But that is a thought, that is an ideology that is present within the church and still present within the church in many places. Here's another one, and I heard this a lot of times from pastors or motivational speakers, or you often hear this from a Christian athlete speaking to the young people. You can be anything you want to be as long as you set your mind to it. Now, I know what they're trying to do. I know how they're trying to encourage, but that is a false statement. You can't be anything you want to be. 
How could you say that, Pastor Rod? All right, if you tell 100 kids you can be the president of the United States, how many of those kids are going to be the presidents of the United States? Let's just say that, that in, in the, the lifespan of one individual, or say one generation, we had from that group of 100 students, presidents of the United States. Not all of them would make it, just because there's a term limit going on. Now, the idea is, listen, with God, discern what he desires for you to do, work hard for it, pursue it, but allow him to fashion and shape direction in your life. That's different than saying, if you just put your mind to it, you can do anything you want to do. So these are subtle, but they permeate into the thinking of the church. Or at the funeral of an unbeliever, the family might say, we're comforted that our father is now in a better place. And if you're a believer and you're hearing that, you're thinking to yourself, how do I get out of this one? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, they're in a better place right now. Or is it, well, actually, no, they're not. Now, I realize you don't wear a T-shirt and say, he's not in a better place, right? I mean, you're not, you're not that brash. But the reality is, sometimes I think we fail to speak the truth in a context where the truth needs to be spoken. Did you realize that because he didn't embrace Christ as his Lord and Savior, he's not in a better place. Where he is is worse. That's hard to say. But we need to be realistic and honest and truthful about it. But these are subtle things. Another one, you don't need to change. You just need to add Jesus to your life. I heard this when I was a youth pastor. And there are are leaders that I had as a youth pastor that were telling kids, listen, you don't have to change. All you need to do is just add Jesus to your life. And it's like, nah, that's not what the gospel says. It's a radical whole life change. You will change completely because Christ is now your master. And here's another one. This goes back years ago. If you want God's blessing on your life, make Ezekiel bread and eat it. And you have no idea what I'm talking about. Good. But the idea was Ezekiel sat down and he made this bread out of all these different grains and all this kind of stuff, and, and God blessed him. So if you do the same thing with, with, with making that Ezekiel bread, God will bless you. And they don't add in the part that you cook it over human dung, right? See, the foolishness of thinking is that, is that people, they say things, they claim things, they promote things, and there are these subtle tendencies, even within the body of Christ, to, to teach and promote false teaching. And it gets in and it creeps in and it affects the church. And so how are we to navigate these kinds of subtle as well as strange teachings that show up in the context of the church? Especially if they're coming from people that are within the church. They're part of the gathered flock. They're, they're in the home group. They're, they're at the small group. They're, they're sitting next to you in the context of church. And, and this is the kind of thinking that they're saying. This is what Paul is addressing here in verses 10 through 17. False teachers had crept into the houses, literally wormed their way into the houses. And you have to think a little bit about that statement. We, we tend to think, oh, they crept into the houses, meaning there's a family-contained unit, and they're creeping into the houses. Where did they meet for church? In the houses. 
So he's describing here the gathered church, and these false teachers have crept into these, these house churches, and they're capturing undiscerning people. And these people have embraced a false teaching and are living it out now and promoting it within the church. So what is Timothy to do under these circumstances, and what are we to do under these circumstances? And the answer to that question is simply uh, going to be this, how we minister the gospel in the face of corrupt false teachers and their false teaching is going to be seen now in two ways in this passage. Paul wants us to understand how we can minister. But the focus of this passage is not so much external, it's more internal. This is, this is Paul saying to Timothy, listen, this is what you have to do. This is something you need to focus on. Now before we, we jump into fleshing out this text, let's just take a moment to just to walk through 2 Timothy again, to remember what this is all about. 2 Timothy is a short letter written by the Apostle Paul while he is in prison. But this is not a kind of a comfortable house prison. This is more of a dungeon prison. He's bound in chains. He's been on trial. He's awaiting his execution. And so knowing that his end was near, he writes this heartfelt letter and this plea to younger Timothy, his son in the faith, saying, basically, endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. That would be the theme of this book. Now, if there was one man of God that Paul had invested in and could count on to carry on the work of the gospel, it was Timothy. His co-laborer, his friend, his protege, and he's the faithful pastor of the church in Ephesus. And so the, a review of 2 Timothy reveals to us the kind of expectations that Paul had for Timothy. First of all, a general expectation. This general expectation simply was to challenge him to take on the God-given responsibilities of being a faithful man of God. Because if Paul is leaving, someone needs to hold the baton. And so he, he then gives him these instructions. I'll just rattle a number of them off to, to you to fan into flame the gift of God, to rest in the power of, of the Holy Spirit that comes from God, to not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of Paul, his servant, to follow the pattern of sound words. That's talking about the apostolic teaching that Paul gave as he ministered the gospel from place to place, to guard the treasure of the gospel, to entrust the gospel to faithful men. So as Paul is entrusting the gospel to Timothy, Timothy is to turn around and to have that same mindset with other men who would also have that same mindset and carry it on through the ages. And then ultimately to endure suffering as a good soldier, single-minded, disciplined, and hardworking. That's the, the general expectation. But then in chapter Chapter 2, he, he, he focuses in now on some of the problems that Timothy is facing specifically in Ephesus. So there's a specific expectation now where he challenges Timothy to realize the problem of false teachers in his church in Ephesus and how their teaching was worming its way into the church. And so Paul's counsel to Timothy in this section is both theological and practical. It's theological theological because he says, remember the gospel. And there's this, there's this creed, so to speak, or a song that he lists there. This is what the gospel contains. These are the things that, that you are called to theologically. 
But then there's some practical stuff, to be an approved workman who is rightly handling the word of truth rather than one who quarrels, to be an honorable vessel by a spiritual cleansing that exchanges youthful passions for the pursuit of godliness, which is described as righteousness, love, faith, and peace. And when false teachers and their followers oppose you, be gentle rather than quarrelsome. So Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 and 26, the following, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So as he, as he counsels Timothy here, the goal of the counsel is to see that the gospel would continue to go forward and repentance would be realized. Last week, J.D. walked us through chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. And there we were challenged to be discerning about the presence of false teaching and their, uh, their, the teachers. And to, to understand where that false teaching or where these false teachers come from. As we have already said, they, they creep into households and capture undiscerning people. They have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. They come from the realm of ungodliness. The source of their thinking and behavior is the world's system, and they're foolish and ignorant, self-seeking men whose minds are defiled and whose faith is disqualified. And so, friends, this is what Paul is up against. This is also what Timothy is up against. And to be sure, it's what the church at all times, in every age, is going to be up against. Now, I realize in the United States, many people looking in from the outside consider this to be a Christian nation, right? However, we know that although we can be comfortable, maybe because we're in the context of much, much more acceptance some in certain areas of our country, like maybe, say, Texas or the South and other places, um, the reality is the church is riddled with false teaching. And there are false teachers pumping out things that Scripture does not say. And through the years, society may have grown in its understanding of science and technology. Education may now be more available than before. But the reality of false teaching and false teachers is still just as present and impactful on the church as it was in Paul's day. For example, for a pastor in many circumstances to stand up and to speak the truth about a false teacher and the false teaching that they're promoting will result in that pastor in many times being fired from that church because how could, you, how could you speak about someone in such an unloving way? Well, as a shepherd, if there is a wolf outside and the sheep are in danger, the shepherd is going to warn the sheep about the wolf. It's a right thing to do. It's a loving thing to do. It's a caring thing to do. But in many contexts, people are saying this, we don't want to cause waves in our communities. Well, no one wants to cause waves, but the gospel will have impact, which will mean waves. We want our communities to know that we love them and care about them. I want our community to know that we care about them, we love them, but that is not going to be the driving force behind what we do. We will ultimately want people to know Jesus. Well, the question is, what kind of Jesus do you want them to know? A Jesus that 
tolerates all kind of falsehood, a Jesus who can be shaped and molded to fit his, uh, this person's own purpose, a Jesus who never speaks harshly except to those who might bring a word of rebuke from Scripture. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul is not advocating here rudeness or belligerence in our witness. Certainly, the world around us should know us by our love. But that picture there is the love that is taking place between brothers and sisters in Christ. But true love speaks the truth. True love is willing to say the hard things, but with compassion. And even the face of false teaching, Paul tells Timothy and us to deal in gentleness with those who have been deceived by the lure of a false teacher or, in particular, their false teaching. So, how now is Timothy to minister the gospel in the face of corrupt teachers and their teaching? And from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, through chapter 4, verse 8, Paul will answer that question in three ways, emphasized by the you statements that are in chapter 3, verse 10, and verse 14, and chapter 4, 1 and 5. Just look, if you would please, at verse 10. But you, emphasize here, followed my teaching. Look at 14. You, however, continue. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God. And then now in verse 5 of chapter 4, but you be sober in all things. There's a contrast going on here. Here are the false teachers. Here's where their ideologies come from. Here's where their thinking and their teaching and the root of their passions and the reasons and the motivations for what they do. That's chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. But Timothy, you are to be different. You are to be shaped and fashioned by something that's far more significant than those things. So in contrast to what they, the false teachers, are doing, this is what you should be doing. And there's three things there. You then remember my example and endure. You then continue in the gospel and be equipped. You then preach the word as an evangelist. And today we'll cover the first two of those. And next week we'll cover chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, where the emphasis there is on the preaching of the word. So now Paul says to Timothy, you, however, have followed my, and he gives a whole list of things. And here's where we get into this first point, this first thing that, God, uh, that, that Paul is telling Timothy to do, and it really is a challenge for us as we live out our lives for his glory, that we remember Paul's example, and as a result of that, we endure uh, just follow the logic of what Paul is saying here as we, as we begin to go from verse 10. He says, you, however, have followed my... So he's saying you followed. Paul is not being arrogant or self-serving by bringing up this list of things that he has done. But he's speaking out of a relationship, a master-disciple relationship that he had with Timothy, that he has with Timothy, I should say. He's speaking about all those times when they traveled on missionary journeys together, that they ministered in towns and villages, that, that, that Timothy listened to his preaching, that uh, he saw uh, Paul serving, um, and, and, he, and Timothy himself served as Paul's messenger. 
He is reflecting on the life that he had lived for God and with Timothy. See, Timothy's relationship with Paul began on one of his missionary journeys, the second missionary journey. And as a result, Timothy grew and came to to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ through Paul's ministry, but Timothy was presented then by those in his hometown as someone that should be under Paul's ministry. And so Paul takes him under his wing and, and takes him through all sorts of different experiences. So Paul is now calling on Timothy to reflect and to remember his example and endure. So he begins by saying, remember my lifestyle, remember my lifestyle. Three words, my teaching, my conduct, uh, conduct, and my aim in life. Timothy knew what Paul taught, he also lived. In 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul had told Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. In other words, the teaching goes hand in hand with behavior. And here is Paul saying, listen, remember my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. Timothy knew that Paul's passion was the glory of God and the spread of the gospel for the glory of God. And unlike the false teachers Timothy was facing, Paul's ambitions were driven by his love for God, not selfish ambitions. They were kingdom ambitions, and these ambitions were rooted in the gospel. So Timothy, or I could say, so Rod, or I could say, so Rebecca, or so Peter, or or so Ron, or put your name in there, is your goal in life, the way you live, an outflow of what you are learning in the Scripture? Does the Word of God drive how you think and how you behave? Would those around you consider that the teaching of the gospel is central in your life? This is, these are questions for us to ask based on Paul's example. They're questions that Paul is wanting Timothy to consider. Listen, you've seen my lifestyle. And then he says, remember my character, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Paul was a man whose character was marked by four distinctives. Here they are, faith. That's a faithfulness toward God. Patience. The idea there is is patience toward others, especially difficult people. It would be the equivalent of the Old Testament long-suffering. There's love toward all, even when provoked. And then there's steadfastness to the end especially in the the face of difficult circumstances. Now see, this this statement here of virtues includes what we would consider to be the cardinal virtues, faith, love, and hope. Steadfastness here would be the equivalent of the hope. And so the addition on the list here is this patience, patience with people. This characteristic would be especially important as Timothy had to deal with with false teachers and, you might want to say, those who were caught up in the false teaching of the false teachers, convinced that what they're thinking is right. And he's saying, listen, you've seen my character. 
You've seen my faith. You've seen my love, my patience, my steadfastness. Now, what would people who know you say about your character on these issues? Are you a man or a woman of faith? I mean, are you the kind of person that not only is faithful to God, but rests in your faith of God? Are you patient with people or are you impatient? Are you known as a loving individual or do you seem to be more self-serving? Do you have the end of heaven in your sights or is it living for now that really is important to you? What we've seen so far is that Timothy has seen has been talking about, or Paul has been talking to Timothy about what Timothy sees in Paul, his lifestyle and character. Now, as we continue, the focus changes to what Timothy saw happened to Paul. Again, observing because he is there. He says, remember my sufferings. Verse 11, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. So Paul here reminds Timothy of his suffering and persecution that he experienced with Timothy. Paul had a a wealth of of instances that he could have pulled as examples to show Timothy what he's talking about. I mean, for example, he could have chosen Philippi in Acts 16 where both Paul and Silas were dragged out of the city, beaten with rods, and then thrown in jail. He could have chosen Thessalonica where Jealous Jews and wicked men traveled to Berea and then chased Paul and Silas out of the city also. But he focuses on three particular cities, and he focuses on those cities for a reason. The three cities are Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, in that order. In Antioch, the people begged Paul and Silas to stay and to keep teaching them on the Sabbath. But the Jews, were told, rose up and drove Paul and Barnabas out of the city, and so they went to Iconium. In Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went into the synagogue and taught, and many believed. But both Jews and Gentiles rose up against them too to mistreat them and to stone them. And so they came to Lystra. And in Lystra, Timothy's hometown, Paul and Barnabas continued to preach the gospel. If you want to follow along now, Acts chapter 14 And verse 19 and following, this is what we have recorded, happened there in Lystra. Acts 14, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derb. And when they had preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Okay, wow. I mean, this was a significant memory for Paul. It was a, a moment when he was left for dead, having been stoned, having been beaten. I don't know about you, when the last time was that you were left beaten and stoned, And then you all of a sudden kind of woke up out of that. But it had an impact on the people there. And what did Paul do? He didn't give up on the ministry. What did he do? He kept on with the ministry. And not only that, he went back. Now, why is this significant for Timothy? Jump now to Acts 16, verses 1 
through 3. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So, so understand what's going on here. What Paul is doing is that he's identifying the fact that Timothy was either a, an eyewitness of what happened to him at Lystra, or at least he was very aware of what happened, because by the time he comes back to Lystra, Timothy is now a believer. So much so that Paul wants to take him under his wing. So what is it that Paul is saying to Timothy? He's saying something along these lines. Timothy, do you understand that you are the product of my persecution and suffering? Do you understand that I had to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel reaching Lystra and ultimately reaching you and your family? Do you understand that the suffering and persecution while proclaiming the gospel are often the necessary means God uses to bring about repentance? That is what happened with your conversion, Timothy. So why shouldn't it be the story of someone else's conversion? It's pretty powerful when you think about it. Hey, Timothy, let me remind you of my sufferings. By the way, the sufferings that resulted in your conversion. And then next, notice he says, my, remember my, my rescue. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Time and time again, Paul and another co-laborer went into a city, preached the gospel, and they were stoned, they were beaten, they were mocked, they were imprisoned. And time and time again, the Lord rescued them. If you don't believe me, read the book of Acts. Just over and over and over again, God rescues Paul. And so there's a reality check going on that we need to, we need to notice here. Paul facing death by execution, having been put on trial and awaiting that execution, is reminded of God's many rescues. But hear this. As a child of God, God's final rescue for Paul would be to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. See, the prospect that we have is the prospect of final rescue. And Paul's final rescue for standing firm and standing tall and standing on the word of God and in the gospel is that he would ultimately lose his life. But how many times over and over and over and over again Paul had been rescued and now God was going to finally take him and take him home. How awesome God is. How sovereign is his controlling providence. The same Lord who sends us with the gospel also rescues us from those who oppose if that is his will. That didn't mean that Paul was unscathed or didn't suffer. I mean, when you're beaten to the point of everyone thinking that you're dead, I think you suffered. When you're stoned, when you're chased out of town, you're suffering. Suffering and persecution was all part of that ministry that Paul 
called Timothy too. But then he, he, he lands now on really kind of the focal point of what he's trying to stress here, and it's this. Remember the axiom. Here's the punchline, and it's found in this axiom. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted. Now, friends, in, in the, the, the comfortable Christianity that much of us have experienced here in the United States, it's hard for us to really wrestle with this. It's really hard for us to grasp this. But all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So as the, as the culture gets worse and worse and worse, the persecution gets ramped up and ramped up and ramped up. Suffering, opposition, and persecution are a necessary consequence of living in the world but not being of the world. If we engage in the world, sharing the world's values, we'll be left alone. But if we live in the world but we don't share in the world's values, then the world will make it hard for us. The world will hate us. And that hatred will come in the form of suffering, will come in the form of persecution, sometimes subtle and eventually harsher. We haven't experienced much of that here, but this is a, an axiom that Paul is saying that we need to take notice of. Let's just go back to the, the main heading here. Remember Paul's example and endure. And he's saying to us, listen, remember my example. Remember the example of all the apostles. If you're a child of God, you will have to learn to endure. And endurance is just part of what it means to be walking with God, pursuing him with your whole heart, living godly. Now, that's, that's a framework that Paul says is an answer to these false teachers. <laughs> Don't be surprised if you have to suffer and if you have to endure. He begins with that. But now he moves on into another territory. And we'll look at it by saying, continue in the scriptures and be equipped. Yet remember my example and endure, but now I, I want you to continue. It's easy to begin something, but it's often hard to continue. Many of us, I think, could all sign up for a triathlon. We could get all the outfits, we could wear the number on our chest, and we could start the race. But the question is, would we continue it? You know, 10 feet off the line, <gasps> that would be me. All right? Swimming, I would enjoy. Um, the riding the bike, I would enjoy. The running would kill me. I couldn't continue. But it's easy to begin. And I think that we, 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 we need to see that scenario as a picture of what is true on the spiritual level. We need spiritual stamina if we're going to keep 
ongoing in the Christian life. If I'm going to enter a triathlon, I don't just enter it tomorrow. I have to plan way ahead. I have to train my body to be prepared and ready for that race. And if we think that we can just catch our pursuit of godliness just on the way without deliberately establishing patterns and habits that are going to move us down that path, we're, we're confused. We're misunderstanding what Scripture says. We need spiritual stamina. Now, friends, that's what Jesus says, Matthew 10, 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's a spiritual stamina, enduring to the end. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides, continues in me, and I in him, he is it. For he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And Jesus says in Luke 9, 62, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So this this idea of continuing is saying, listen, there's going to be voices along your journey that are going to say, just give it up. This is too hard. This is pointless. Why are you going in this direction? There's something better to enjoy. Now, live it. Enjoy it. But as a Christian, you're saying, but I'm pursuing godliness. I'm pursuing Christ-likeness. Jesus is my master. He's my savior. And I want to live for his glory. And all along the journey, there's going to be little outlets, little, little ramps that are saying, hey, you can rest over here. You can chill out over here. Stop and get a Starbucks. Get some McDonald's. Well, you'll never be able to run after that, right? The point is, all these things are there to stop us from actually pursuing what God is calling us to do. And this word continue is what is driving this whole section from verses 10 through 17. Paul is challenging Timothy to continue to remember his example and endure. This is the ongoing activity that fuels us for ministry. He's saying, continue in the scriptures and be equipped. In other words, Timothy, even when it seems easier to give up or to give in to all the barrage of false teaching that is out there, you must continue in your calling to guard the gospel, to be ready to endure suffering, to be equipped in the word. And then he lists off for Timothy aspects about word ministry and the presence of the word in his life that are really foundational to what he is being called to do. Verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you've learned. And I'm going to pick up now a little bit, knowing from whom you learned it. Putting those two things together there. But as for you, continue in what you've learned, knowing from whom you learned it. The scriptures, he's saying, are what you learned. So Timothy, what have you learned? Who are the people that have taught you? Now we know from this book there are three primary influences on Timothy's life. There is his grandmother, Lois, his mother Eunice, and Paul himself. And the ministry of Lois and Eunice was to teach their son the Old Testament scriptures. This is is pre-conversion for Timothy. As, as a grandmother and a mother, and the mother married to a Greek. We have two Jewish 
grandmother and mother, who are saying, we want to raise our child in the fear of God. And so they would teach Timothy the truths of the Old Testament, just like any faithful Jewish parents would. But that, that teaching was probably more of an oral tradition. It probably wasn't that they had the Scripture sitting in their home. And when I say the, the, the word oral tradition, a lot of us get really, really suspicious. Because you guys have ever played the, the whisper game, right? You know, you start in the back corner there, and the person begins by saying something like, you know, Willy Wonka's chocolate bars are three for a penny. And that person turns to the person next to them, and he repeats the phrase, and then they turn to the person next to them, and they repeat the phrase. By the time you get to the end, it sounds something like this. Penny is behind bars for killing Billy with a Tonka truck. Now, you, how do you get there? Well, that's part of the, the flaw of communication. But oral tradition is far more robust than that. We're talking here about young people memorizing word-perfect chunks of Scripture, repeating them, reciting them to one another. It's not just a guy sitting around a fire. It's like, you know, years ago when the sun was up, and we kind of have this kind of idea that it's called all loosey-goosey. That's not the way oral tradition was. It was very deliberate. It was very clear. It was, it, it was reciting from memory the stories. Now, we don't know exactly. It's possible that Timothy had some more formal training also. But it's at least worth us noting that grandmother and mother influenced Timothy, by teaching the Word of God, giving theological significance and impact to what was being said in the Old Testament. So they are what you learned, Paul says. Secondly, they are what you believed. But as for you, continue in what you have firmly believed, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the Scripture or the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So as Lois and Eunice faithfully taught Timothy from the Old Testament, um, then Paul comes into town, and Paul begins to proclaim the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? It's not some new message outside of the Old Testament. It is the message of the Old Testament that is fulfilled in Christ. So just like when Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, began to connect the dots for the disciples about who he is revealed in the Old Testament, so when Paul came, his apostolic message was to preach the Old Testament and show how Christ is the fulfillment of that Old Testament. And connecting the dots with the events of Christ and his crucifixion and his resurrection and how that all connected. And so when we think about these sacred writings that are being talked about here, it's not just talking about the Old Testament, it's talking about both the Old Testament and the apostolic writings, which are the New Testament. It is worth simply stating the Sunday school kind of simplified way of looking at the Bible. I'll say this, we've done this before, but I'll say it right now, maybe it will help you. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In the Acts of the Apostles, Jesus is preached. In the Epistles, Jesus is explained. 
in the book of Revelation, Jesus is expected. You see, as you look at the Bible, as you look at the totality of the Bible, the message is pointing to a Messiah whose name is Jesus. So not only did did Timothy learn the Old Testament, but when Paul comes on the scene, he preaches the gospel and shows the fulfillment of the Old Testament in the person of Christ. And ultimately, the things that Paul says and what are recorded for us in the Bible now have become the sacred writings. Now, the point that Paul is making is that from, ch- from childhood, your acquaintance with the sacred writings made you wise for salvation. The steady, systematic teaching, explaining, and living out of God's holy word laid the foundation for Timothy to believe that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. In other words, what Lois and Eunice had done through the years of, 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 of unpacking the Old Testament set the stage for the gospel coming to Timothy and for Paul's message to take root in his heart. Not only did he learn them, but he also believed them. And friends, this has implication for us who are parents, doesn't it? Some questions. Are we teaching our children the word of God? Are we giving them the big picture as well as the specific stories? Are we connecting the Old Testament events with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we teaching and explaining God's word in such a way that our children are learning? Are we honestly living out our convictions that are rooted in God's word? Do we realize how important it is to faithfully impart the scriptures to our children? Now please hear this. You can't save your children. You can't save them. Some of us wish that we could, but that would undermine the whole gospel, wouldn't it? Salvation is something that God does independent of us, according to his glory, according to his kindness, according to his grace. But we, as parents, can do our part by laying the groundwork by teaching and explaining God's word to our children. We can help them to hide God's word in their hearts. We can help them to think biblically through the struggles of daily life. We can teach them to know God's word at their level, but in a full and meaningful way. So open up the Bible at home with your kids. Talk with them about God in practical ways when you're out with them doing different things. Bring God, bring the word of God into the story. But also, friends, be careful. Be careful that the only time you're bringing out the Bible or a passage of Scripture is when you want to rebuke them or confront them with their sin. You know, the Bible says you need to obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Yeah, got that one. If, we, if, if that's the only time we're bringing up the Bible, what does that ultimately, what impact does it have on that individual? They're actually going to have a negative perspective of it. We don't want to produce bitterness toward God and toward his word. We want to see life flowing out because the word of God is understood and is being, is being thought through and lived out in their lives. So the scriptures are what he learned. The scriptures are what he believed. But the scriptures ultimately 
Paul is saying, is what you need. Now, it's important to hear Paul's logic here. Learned, believed, but in the face of false teachers and their false teaching, it is the scriptures that are what you truly need. So continue in them. Your answer to the false teachers is to go to Scripture. Now, he's not talking at this point in time about creating answers from Scripture to answer these false teachers. He's talking about you, Timothy. What do you need? Where do you find your rest? Where do you find your answers? Where do you find your understanding? And as you compare the false teaching to the scriptures, much will be revealed. So for this this morning, I'm going to take a little extra time here. I'm going to use one person that I consider to be a false teacher. And and if you don't like what I have to say, uh, I'm not sorry because I very clearly believe this. But we're going to talk about Joel Osteen as an example. Now you might want to watch him, or you might watch him on TV. You may have listened to him on the radio. You may have read one of his best-selling books. And think to yourself, there's something just not right about this man's teaching. And I would agree with you. Now, I'm bringing him up just to simply use him as an illustration of why it's important to say what we need is the Word of God. Okay? Now, what do you turn to for evidence that he is a false teacher and that he is communicating false teaching? Is it his plastic smile. No. And hear this. I've sat under faithful preachers and expositors of the Word of God that constantly smile. And they're honoring the God, the, the, the God of this universe. They're honoring God with their ministry. Is it his wavy hair? No. I may not like his hairstyle, but it's better than a comb over any day. Is it his slick suit that I'm going to use to criticize what he does? No. In fact, I grew up um, preaching in a suit most of my years. I actually enjoy it. Um, I think it's fine. Um, Doesn't mean I'm going to continue to do that all the time, but it's okay. Is it the size of his church? And man's would be no. You may question why they meet in the former compact center stadium that seats 16,000, but they boast an attendance of 40,000, so they need a big place. Is it what Joel Osteen teaches compared to the scriptures? The answer is yes. Now, what I'm trying to drive at here is there could be a lot of things you could point at, and you might even be tended to mock. Look at his smile, look at his hair, look at this. Those are all insignificant things compared to what does he say and what do the scriptures teach? Are they consistent or are they not? Now, here's some things that he teaches. He teaches a prosperity gospel that promotes that you can have your best life now. Now, friends, if you are having your best life now, if that is your best life now, you're ultimately destined for hell. Because you are not looking for a best life then. You're living it now. 
And this is the prosperity gospel. It's all focused on what God, in theory, promises you now. Have it now. Call on him now to have that thing. He's also part of what's called the word faith movement that believes if you speak something in faith that God promises that it will come to pass. So you see a house that you want, you say, by faith, God, I am speaking this word and I am claiming this house for myself. There's power in what I'm saying. See, this is a word faith ministry, which of course is contrary to what scriptures teach because we're taught to rely on God and to trust his will rather than you know, say that we have this power of speaking something into existence. He refuses to call people sinners because he wants to preach a message of hope and encouragement, and he believes that Mormons are also Christians, which cannot be based on a, even a basic understanding of the person work of Christ that's revealed in the Scriptures. How then do we say that his teaching is false and that ultimately he is a false teacher? It's not by the observable, it's by what he says. And you take what he says and you compare it to Scripture. And here is the point that Paul is making. The means by which we're able to consider false teachers and their teaching is by opening up the Word of God, is by our understanding of the Word of God, by our comprehension of the Word of God. We go to the Scriptures to compare the false teaching it is in the scriptures that we find answers. It is in the scriptures that false teaching is exposed for what it is. It is in the scriptures that wisdom and counsel comes to the believer for how to ultimately counter that false teaching. See, when it comes down to it, what matters is what someone teaches. So in the scriptures, you learned and believed. It is in these scriptures this is what you truly need, Paul is saying to Timothy. So Paul now draws Timothy to an importance of the Scriptures. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness or training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now this is the familiar passage of Scripture. But in its context, it is speaking to how the Word of God is the means by which we're able to actually consider and be discerning of false teaching, as well as the ability then in that context to live in such a way out of the Word of God that will glorify Him. Let's just think about three things then that flow out of this little, these couple of verses. First of all, the Scriptures are inspired. They're breathed out by God. It is from this expression that we get the word, the inspiration of the scriptures. That's how this theonupsos is translated in many of the um, translations. In the ESV, they've, they've, they've actually brought the words in here, breathed out by God, which is a very accurate translation of what has taken place. Now, it doesn't mean then to say the Bible is inspired that when I read it, I have some inspiration or that somehow there's a season of being inspired myself to do something. That's not the idea of inspiration. The idea of inspiration is, is to, that God breathed it out. He thought it. 
He willed it and he breathed it out as he spoke God's word into existence. That's the idea. It's his breath empowered by the, the, the spirit of God and, and the result of that is the word of God. Now, this was not new teaching to the first century Jews. They believed that about the Old Testament. This was actually God's word. This is also what the early church believed as the apostle Peter declares, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So think of those individuals who are writing the Word of God. Think of them in this image, that they're, they're like these, these, these sail ships, and, and as they're writing, God is, is the wind, in a sense, behind the sails. He's breathing out, and he's using them as the, as the agents of the recording of what he's breathing out for mankind. They certainly used their own personalities. They certainly were speaking to a particular audience from a particular situation. But it is God who was actually breathing out his word through them. So it's, it's breathed out. The word of God is God's breath. They are God's words. Now in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, notice how Paul brings both the Old Testament and the New Testaments together under the same word, the Scriptures. Here's what he says. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. He's quoting there from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4. He continues and says, and the laborer deserves his wages, which is a quotation from Luke chapter 10 and verse 7. And so Paul himself is identifying both the Old Testament and the New Testament as the Scriptures. Now, it's important for us to recognize that, friends, that what we have in our hands, both all the New Testament, is the Word of God. It doesn't just contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. So in Paul's mind, both the Old and the New Testaments were breathed out by God. Now, through the years, the Scriptures have come under attack by false teachers, and the inspiration of the Bible has been denied by many. And so it's been important then or necessary to clarify some things about this whole idea of inspiration. And there are two words that are used to help clarify that. Two, I would say, expressions. There's the verbal inspiration. And by verbal, it simply means that the actual very words are the word of God. The words are inspired, right? The words are God-breathed. Then there's the plenary inspiration. If you go to a conference that has workshops, they'll also have plenary sessions. The plenary session is when everyone is gathered together, right? All the people attending the conference are supposed to be gathered together for this session. So the word plenary means all. It means not just the very words, but all of the very words are inspired, are breathed out by God. So hear this, the Bible that you hold in your hand is the breathed out word of God. Every word of it and all of it is breathed out by God. This is the word of the Lord. And it is what we need 
to live our lives for God's glory. And it's what we need to expose and understand false teaching and false teachers. And it's what we need to answer the ungodly teaching that permeates or comes into or worms its way into the context of the church. Some have tried to snuff out the Bible through the years. There's a number of examples we could talk about, but one of them would be in, in Russia, in particular, under the Stalin era. They tried to eradicate the Word of God from the people of God. They, they, they taught that the Bible was simply a collection of legends and myths and old wives' tales. They even established an anti-Bible museum in Moscow to try to convince the people. But even as they continued to deride the Word of God and those who believed in the Word of God, um, they were so afraid that people would read it. They were so afraid that people would believe it they began to put them in prison and began to put them into labor camps if they were guilty of reading the Word of God because they knew that this unique book had the power to change people's lives. And friends, that's just the reality of it. This is the very Word of God. It is this Word of God that breathes life now into us. It is the means by which God speaks. It is the means by which the gospel goes forward. So this is God's breathed out Word. The Scriptures are also profitable. They're profitable. They're beneficial They're useful, some texts say. And Paul gives four words to describe the usefulness of the Scriptures. The word teaching. The Word of God is useful for teaching or teaching the truth. And sadly, in today's Christian culture, this idea of doctrine is kind of a taboo. That doctrine's a bad thing. But doctrine is simply a word that is describing the teaching that takes place in the context of the church. Every time I get up and I'm opening the Word of God and I'm preaching it, I am teaching doctrine. When you study it, that's what happens. And so the kind of teaching or preaching that's being talked about here is the kind that reads the text, explains the text, illustrates the text, applies the text. Then there's reproof. Reproof is confronting with the truth which reveals our sinful condition. So the Word of God is rightly understood and rightly taught, and it exposes the condition of our hearts. It reveals what our idols are. It reveals the rebellion that we have in our hearts. It exposes the kind of sinful errors that we have embraced as true, but contrary to Scripture. The next word is correction. And the idea there is guiding people from their sin back to walking with God. See, reproof shows us our condition, but correction shows us the way back. And so imagine, if you would, these four words um, in the context of, of a person walking down a path, and there's a ditch on both sides. You begin by, by learning the doctrine. You're learning the, the teaching of the Bible. And, and, and as you are doing that, 
uh, you're seeking to live out your life for God's glory, but then you, you, get, you drift or you slip into sin and you fall into the ditch. And it's the word of God that says, listen, you're no longer walking down this path of holiness. You're now in the ditch. This is your condition. This is where you are. That is this idea of reproof or rebuke. But see, God doesn't just leave us there, does he? He rebukes us. He shows us our condition. But he says, all right, but let me show you how to get out of this. Here's what you need to do. This is the correction. Here's how you get back on the path. And you come confessing your sin, repenting, seeking forgiveness. God restores you and says, all right, this is how you get back on the path. Now there's this instruction in righteousness, which basically is is learning how to live in the pursuit of your walk with God. And you, you go through these cycles over and over again. I'm walking down the path, and I fall into sin. The Word of God rebukes. The Word of God corrects. And now I continue pursuing this walk toward Christ-likeness. This idea of training in righteousness means learning to maintain a, a life of pursuing Christ. It comes as a result of, of maybe implementing the spiritual disciplines in a practical way into your life. The discipline of Bible reading, of prayer, of giving, of serving, of fasting, of worship of evangelism, and so on. The Word of God is not only inspired, but the Word of God is also useful, beneficial. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. But here's the goal. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, the expression man of God certainly is focusing on Timothy's role as a pastor teacher. But we must be careful that we don't just say, well, that's just for you, pastor guys. This is what the Word of God does for all of the followers of Christ. So we allow it to have its place and its way and its its work in us. The Bible is all we need to equip us fully for life. Johnny, in in presenting the songs this morning, said the importance of the sufficiency of Scripture, that the Word of God is sufficient. It is what we need, and it's all that we need. And it's the Bible that thoroughly equips the man of God for good work. It's the, the Word of God that equips us for doing the things that God is calling us to do that would bring glory to His name. And there are two words here that are used that really come from the same Greek root. And the idea of both of them is equipped. It says complete and equipped. One of them is an adjective. The other one's a participle. And the idea behind this is that the word of God, or that the man of God, may be super equipped, fully equipped, totally equipped. So before anything else, the man of God is a man of the Bible. And that should be a goal for all of us, that we as God's children are people of the book. Now to put it another way, the Bible is sufficient to equip believers for living and for facing the false teaching that is so prevalent in their culture, even in their church. Now, let us consider how we can tile this together. Remember that Paul is speaking to Timothy in the context of leaving the gospel and the word of God and the treasure in his care 
And he's applying it now in the context of his church where he's saying, listen, you have a responsibility, Timothy, to face these false teachers and the false teaching. And the primary thing you need to do is, first of all, recognize that, like me, you're going to have to endure. This is going to be hard work. This is not going to be easy. Secondly, continue in the Scriptures. Continue to allow the Scriptures to be the source of your strength, the source of where you go so that you can conclude what you need to conclude about these false teachers as well as how you can live your life for God's glory. And so I want to leave you now just with two challenges that um, I think will just reflect or, or kind of remind us of what we looked at but would hopefully drive home these truths. First of all, the word reflect. I want to encourage you to reflect on all the ways that God has been at work in your life bringing you to himself. Now, some of you are young in the faith and some of you are old in the faith. But as you look over your life, you can begin to think of all the different people that God has used to impact you, to teach you at different stages in your life. Maybe people you haven't seen for years, but God used them to teach you maybe something about the foundational principles about who Christ is or what it means to, to be a Christian, and they help lay a foundation of discipleship for you. You've, you've built on that. Just reflect on that. This is all part of God's dealing with you and growing you. Reflect on the kind of suffering and endurance that others have experienced so that you would come to faith in Christ. Now, that may not necessarily be something that was ultimately true for you. In other words, you may have, you know, it may have been your parents that, that led you to the Lord. But there are plenty of examples of people's conversion where it was a difficult thing. People risking and opening up their mouths to share the gospel, wondering whether or not they were going to be rejected. And why should it be any different with you? Why are you not willing to open up your mouth and be ready to be rejected, be ready to, be, to suffer because it is through that suffering, it is through that rejection that God brings the glory of his word into the lives of people. Let me share with you one story that my father, who's now uh, with the Lord, told me from years ago. My father grew up in, in India. When he was um, in his 20s, um, he was living in what they called a chummery, and chummery basically was a, a male boarding house and most of the people that were there were young men. And his roommate was a man by the name of Malcolm. And it was very typical. My father was a believer. Malcolm was a pagan, okay? I mean, he, he just wanted to live for himself. And so uh, on the weekend, Malcolm would get dressed. He would get dressed up as best he could. He would slick his hair back, and he was going to the club. And the, by the club, it was the, the country club of that day. It's the place where they had fun and games. It's the place where they have parties. It's the place where they could go to dance. It's the place that they could socialize. His life was all about going to the club. And as Malcolm would go to the club, my father would get dressed, and he'd be on his way, and he would be going to church. And Malcolm would just mock my father. He just could not understand. He could not comprehend why my, my dad would be so foolish to pursue this religious stuff. My dad would just smile, and he would continue, and sometimes they would talk, and my dad would interact with him and just kind of share what, what, you know, what he was doing and why he was doing it. And one day, Malcolm was getting ready to go to the club. As my dad would say it, 
he could sense that there were some things that Malcolm was wrestling with. There was some struggle going on with him. Maybe it was a, a female friend or maybe it was something that had happened to him. But he was getting ready to go to the club, but there was something about him that just wasn't right. And, and my father just took that opportunity and opened up his Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and began to read it. Malcolm... Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with deceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. And he said, Malcolm, this is talking about you. And of course, Malcolm just blew up and just got angry with my father. I'm sure used whatever expletives they used in that day um, and mocked my father and scorned my father. And my father ended up leaving. And while he's walking away, praying for Malcolm, my father goes to church. He comes back later, having been to church and doing some other things. And Malcolm is in the room, and he hasn't gone to the club. He's sitting in his room. He's shaking, and he's been weeping. And he says, Brother Phillips, tell me more about this Jesus. And as a result of my father's boldness, the two roommates became two spiritual brothers and lifelong friends. But it came at a cost. Ridicule, mocking, verbal abuse. But it was all worth it. Now see, friends, this is, this is where God has placed us. Are we willing to be like that? Are we willing to open our mouths and, and, and risk that kind of response? Reflect. Reflect on those who have shaped you. Reflect on those who have stuck their necks out for the fear, even possibility of rejection, but have done that. And as a result, you have come to faith in Christ. And secondly, simply continue. It's easy to read this passage that we've just studied and come to the conclusion, I'm not a pastor. I'm not trained as a student of God's word. I could never confront false teaching I don't have the biblical knowledge base to do that. And I, I understand some of that, that struggle, some of the, the, that thinking. Again, let me ask you to reflect on how God's word has already been at work in your life. What has God already been teaching you? How have you already grown in your understanding of who you are and who Christ is? The point I'm trying to make here is that your growth has already been in process. You are steadily growing. If you're placing yourself in the Word and under the Word, you are steadily growing in your, 
your knowledge and your understanding of the Word of God. And so my counsel to you would be continue, continue to read and study God's Word. Make that a priority. Continue to put yourself under the teaching of God's Word. Continue to learn it with a purpose. Continue to memorize it and to meditate on it and even continue to teach it. Many times it's by teaching that you learn things best. I may be a pastor teacher but I have to continue to learn about God's word. And as you, as a fellow brother or sister in Christ, can continue to grow in your knowledge, in your understanding, in your application of God's word, you'll have a better grasp and the better ability to discern what is true and what is false, to be able to speak into people's lives that are struggling through difficult things and, and the presence of false teaching. Friends, hear this. The scripture is what you've learned, it's what you've believed, but it's also what you and I desperately need. You see, for Timothy, it would be easy to kind of shift gears and say, well, I need to, I need to handle this stuff in a different way. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. Endure, but allow the word of God to equip you. And see, for us, The challenge is to endure, but it's also to be equipped by the Word of God. Next week, he'll give the application for Timothy to preach the Word, to take the Word that has equipped him and then proclaim it. Lord, help us today to consider our walk with you, to consider whether or not we are honestly looking at the influence and the the shape of our of our past, and, and Lord, how you have been at work in that. But Lord, even to, to look at the example of Paul and to recognize that to be a faithful believer means that we will have to endure suffering. Persecution is around the corner for us in some way, shape, or form. But Lord, there's a challenge for all of us here to see the seriousness of the presence and the activity and the vibrancy of the Word of God in our lives, equipping us for the work of the ministry. Lord, help us to cultivate, to nurture, and to continue doing what you've called us to do by being people of the Word, trusting the Word, and allowing you, Lord, to work through that Word that you've breathed out for us. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. Lord, for the way you counsel us. Would you be glorified now by how we receive it? and how we live for your glory in your precious holy name. Amen.